0: All right. Well, good morning. I am really glad to see you, especially if this is your first time here. uh, Welcome, especially to you. It's not easy to come into um, an unfamiliar place for the first time. So thank you for taking that initial step. Um, I hope I get a chance to meet you before you have to take off today. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas season. Um, I want to invite all of you to find Luke chapter 22 if you've got a Bible with you. Um, the words will also be up on the screen in just a moment, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Luke chapter 22. Um, if you are joining us uh, for the first time or the first time in a while, we have been um, following the story of Jesus' life through the eyes and the writing of a man named Luke. This, um, this book that we're in in the Bible, is um, the longer technical name is The Gospel of Luke. He's telling us Jesus' life story. At this place in his account, this is getting very close to the end. There's 24 chapters in Luke. We're in uh, chapter 22, so very near the end. Um, Luke's getting very close to the end point of Jesus' life um, on earth. Jesus, um, just in a matter of hours here in the account, um, is going to give up his life on the cross. And as he's getting close to the end of Jesus' life in the account here, um, things are really going badly for Jesus' followers, for his disciples. In the hours before Jesus gives up his life, um, we're seeing all kinds of failures from his followers, from his disciples. We've seen them do all kinds of things that um, they would be really ashamed of if they were with us here this morning. Um, let's think about some of those things and rehearse them real quickly. Um, we have seen them argue with each other about who's the greatest, right? Right after the Last Supper, right after the bread and the cup, they the immediate conversation is which one of them is superior to the others. Then after that, we've seen them sleeping um, in the garden when Jesus has asked them to pray along with him. They fall asleep. We saw one of Jesus' disciples even... Uh, tell the authorities where they could find Jesus on this night so that they can arrest him. Like, he was a close associate of Jesus named Judas, and he went and told the authorities, hey, you can find him here at this hour so they could come and take him away. And we talked about that last week. Um, Judas, we call that a grand failure. And now at this point today, Jesus has been arrested, and the last disciple standing... Peter is going to have a major and very personal failure in the courtyard nearby the place where Jesus is being examined by the authorities. We are observing someone's worst moment today. And we should just Um, Take a moment at the outset and understand the the heaviness and the the depth of what we're doing. This is someone's worst moment of their life. It's their lowest moment as a disciple of Jesus. And it's on display for everyone and has been for 2,000 years. What if, what if your worst moment and greatest failure was on display for public consumption and available for everyone to dissect in church after church after church for 2,000 years? That's what we're doing today. We're examining someone's worst moment, their, their lowest point, And we're doing that because we get there too. We get to places like we're going to see Peter get to today. We get to places of shame and self-loathing. We'll see Peter get there today. We'll talk about some of the ways that we get there ourselves. So we'll identify with what we see in Peter in terms of failure. And then most importantly, the most important thing that we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus responds to it because that's what we really want to know in the depth of our hearts is how does Jesus respond to me? What does he think of me when I'm at that lowest moment as one of his followers? Okay, that's where we're headed today. If you're able to to stand for the reading, I want to invite you to stand Um, if you'd like to honor the word of God that way. This is the account of Peter's failure from um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 54, and I'll read through verse 62, all right? Then they seized him and led him away, that's Jesus, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Before we talk about what we just read, um, I want to give you a quiet moment um, to pray in your own heart and ask God in this moment to give you what you need today from the word. Okay? Just ask him. Pray the very personal prayer and ask him for what you need today. Father, we know that you long to give good gifts to your children, and you give good gifts by means of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we ask for now. I pray for a good gift for every person listening now as we look at these words of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the same Holy Spirit is here in power among us now to apply the word to each heart. We know that you're a good giver, and so we come to you and ask. We ask in faith, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated, folks. We, uh, as I said, we talked last Sunday about one kind of grand failure. We call that the failure of dismissing Jesus from your life. Last Sunday, Judas dismissing Jesus from your life. Judas dismissed Jesus from his life with a kiss. Peter didn't do that. Okay, Peter. Peter's not Judas. Peter's a different disciple. Peter is sticking with Jesus. He had the courage to follow the arrest party. We see in verse 54 that he's following um, at a distance, it says. And then Peter has his own kind of grand failure, and it's a failure that we could call distancing yourself from Jesus. Distancing yourself from Jesus. Peter has this series of interactions with some strangers who he happens to be sitting among, where he puts more and more distance between himself and Jesus. He does his best to disassociate from Jesus. Probably the most condemning statement that he makes. He makes three statements that we read about here. The most condemning one is probably the first one, verse 57. Look what he says, according to verse 57 in response to the woman who thinks he looks like a follower of Jesus. Woman, I do not know him. That is complete disassociation from Jesus. I do not know him. And then his next two statements are really just following that up and confirming what he's already said. The point is that Peter, who's been a leader a leader among Jesus' disciples is distancing himself now from Jesus. So why are we calling this a grand failure? We're calling this a grand failure because in this scene, we see a disciple determined to do something that's completely the opposite of discipleship. Discipleship means following closely. Following Jesus' leading. Discipleship means closing the distance between yourself and Jesus, following him more and more closely over time. And here he does the opposite. He does all that he can to walk away from Jesus. It's the opposite of what a disciple does. That's why we're calling it a grand failure. Peter turns and walks away from Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, Peter reaches a point where his close attachment to Jesus has actually become an inconvenience for him. There's something else that's hanging out there in front of him that's more attractive in that moment than a close association from Jesus. What is that thing? What is that attractive thing that's hanging out there in the moment that he wants to go after and get? Well, in this case, it's safety. Safety. That's the that's the carrot hanging out there, an opportunity to be safe. To not get involved in whatever's going to happen to Jesus and whatever's coming his way. He gets to escape that. Safety is more attractive to him in that moment. Safety is more desirable in that moment. I think we can all understand that and how that must have felt. So Jesus is sold out in a moment. All that resolve that Peter had had earlier to stay with Jesus is just gone, just like that. Now, let me ask you, where, where does this dynamic show up in your life? I'm talking specifically to people who associate with Jesus, who consider yourself a disciple, who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, who are trying to follow him closely, who are trying to obey him. And I'm asking you, where does this same dynamic show up in your life where Jesus is sold in a moment? What are the idols that have drawn you away from him in a moment? Here's what I'm asking. Do you ever find yourself consciously disassociating from Jesus? To grab that other thing that's more attractive to you in the moment. Whether it's safety. Whether it's indulging your lusts indulging your anger maybe it's indulging revenge maybe it's indulging comfort what are the things for you that make you likely to say for a moment yeah i follow jesus but not for the next 10 minutes Or not for the next 10 years. I'm walking away for a reprieve. Do you ever not look like a disciple on purpose? I think everyone listening falls into one of two categories, okay? There are those who have only done these things in secret. When I'm talking, when I've been talking for the last two minutes, you're able to identify things in your life that fit into that category, but they're known only to you because it's all taken place in secret and pretty much nobody else knows, okay? It's in secret. There's another category. There are those who have done the things that I'm talking about and everyone has found out about it. It's become public, like Peter. Your your grand failure is out there and has been out there for everyone to observe and dissect. You distanced yourself from Jesus in the moment to have an affair or a series of affairs, and it became known. You distanced yourself from Jesus in the moment to commit a crime because you had cultivated a desire to do that crime in your heart over a long period of time. And in a moment, you walked away from Jesus and you did it, and now everybody knows because you went to jail. And now there's a record, and everyone knows. You distance yourself from Jesus in a moment and said things that a disciple of Jesus should never say to someone or to other people. You indulged your anger. And it happened in front of everyone. And there's no taking it back. And now you just live with the fallout from that. You distance yourself from Jesus by any number of other ways, by stealing, by cheating, by embezzling, by some other action. Maybe maybe you distance yourself from Jesus by not taking action, some kind of non-action. You didn't do the right thing when a disciple of Jesus would have stood up for that person, would have protected the vulnerable, would have spoken up taking care of the weaker person. You just failed to look like a disciple of Jesus in the moment because you didn't have courage. He didn't engage. We have all had the kinds of failures that we see in Peter moments where our association with Jesus becomes more of an inconvenience and something that's not as desirable. and So we grab for other things that we find more desirable. Some are secret. Some are public. What have yours been, secret or public, or both? And then we have moments like we see um, Peter have in verse 62, the very last verse in the account, and he went out and wept bitterly. If you truly love and follow Jesus, these moments of distancing yourself from Jesus lead to moments of deep, deep shame. Maybe you would even describe them as moments of self-hatred, self-loathing, Where you say to yourself things like, I I can't believe that I did that. How could I ever have done that? That is the very last thing that I would ever want to do. It's the thing I said I would never do, and I did it. And I can't believe I did it. I think that's the place where Peter is in verse 62. He, He did the thing that he said he would never do. He hurt the person that he is the last person he would ever want to have hurt. He said he would follow Jesus closely to the very end, even if no one else did. And then all that resolve was gone in a flash, and he did what he said he would never do. And now there's just weeping. He is so, so low. And I would not be surprised if Peter could speak to us today if he would just say, you know, I really would have rather died. In the end, looking back, I would have rather died than have done that. Some of you know exactly how Peter felt. Some of you feel that way now and have felt that way for years. Overwhelming shame and self-loathing. It may be a feeling that you've had once in a really big way, or it may be something that you experience to a lesser extent um, frequently, weekly. Whatever the case is for you, the thing that we want to think about next is, okay, well, what does Jesus think? What will he do when we've done the thing that we would never want to do? Repeatedly, Here are four things that are true of Jesus' response to Peter. I'm just going to take off four things that we can say are true about Jesus' response to him. Not all of them are from Luke 22. Some of them are. Some of them are things that we find out later from other accounts of Peter's life. And I hope that these four things will comfort you. Um, I hope that they will help you where needed, be part of healing for you potentially, as you maybe work to recover in your soul from some kind of failure, all right? How's Jesus going to respond to this? The first thing that we can say is that Jesus had already seen his failure. That is, Jesus knew that this was going to happen before it actually happened. We know that by looking back at Luke 22, 34, Jesus Jesus told Peter a few hours before this happened that it was going to happen. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus knew in advance. He knew all along that Peter was going to disassociate from him in the moment. So nothing we do, no success, no failure ever surprises Jesus. He has seen it all. Your whole life. All at once. He knows your whole life all at once, the whole thing. He saw you before you were born. He knows what your last day will be. He knows everything in between. There's something so comforting about Psalm 103 where we read this wonderful news that the Lord, He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows what you're made of. He knows your constitution. He knows that you're weak. He knows you're not him. That's why we need him. He knows you're vulnerable. He knows that you fail. He knows your frame. I'm so thankful that he knows my frame. He's not surprised when I fail. He's not surprised when you fail. He knows that we're fallen. He's already seen your specific failures and chosen to love you anyway. Jesus did not come to shame us for our failures. He came to love us in the midst of our failures. By sacrificing himself to pay for our failures on the cross. Truth number one is that your failure does not catch God off guard. It's the whole reason that Jesus came to us in the flesh. That's what we're celebrating the Christmas season and gave his life for you. Truth number two, okay? Truth number one, Jesus already had seen his failure. Truth number two, Jesus didn't leave him. We're thinking about what Peter experienced and applying this to our own lives. And the second thing we can say is that Jesus didn't leave him. Peter left Jesus, but Jesus didn't leave Peter. Peter abandoned Jesus, but Jesus didn't abandon Peter. Listen, Jesus did everything that he could in that moment for Peter. He did everything he could do for Peter in Peter's lowest moment. He did everything he could. He did the only thing that he could do. What's the only thing that he could do? He could look at him. Obviously, I can't prove it. But I have a strong conviction that the look of Jesus that's described in verse 61, where we read, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I have a, a strong conviction that this is a look of compassion and love. I don't think I could ever be convinced that this is a look of disapproval that he gives him. I'm convinced that the look With which Jesus looked at Peter was a look that communicated to him I have always loved you, and I still love you, and I will always love you, even in your lowest moment. Jesus is bound, he can't move his arms and his hands, he can't wave can't make any kind of a gesture towards Peter. He's standing at a distance from him. He can't talk to Peter. What's the only thing that he can do? He can look at him, can't he? Just imagine if Jesus hadn't looked at him. Just imagine if Jesus had heard everything that was happening and heard the denial and heard the rooster crow and kept his back turned to Peter. What would Peter have thought then? But in that moment, Jesus does a relational thing. He does the only thing that he can do. He looks at him. He hasn't abandoned him. Relationship is still present. When you disassociate from Jesus to get what you want, even, rela- even repeatedly like Peter, even though you may try as hard as you can to put distance between yourself and Jesus, Jesus is not leaving you relationship is still present. He communicates to you today, I have always loved you. I still love you even in your lowest moment. One one concern that some people might have about speaking this clearly and Boldly and unashamedly about the love of Jesus for disciples no matter what? Like, if we say these things, aren't you just telling people, hey, it's okay to just go out and do whatever you want to do and just be a big failure because Jesus loves you anyway? Isn't that the risk of telling people? If there's a love that will never let them go, I'm telling you there's a love that will never let you go no matter what you do. The Bible has no concern, whatever, about saying that. It boldly says that. That's the theme in the New Testament. There is a love that will not let you go if you are a disciple of Jesus. I have no concern about telling you that and worrying about that you're going to abuse that. That's what the scriptures want you to know, disciple. That's the reason Paul writes Romans 8. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, life, nor death, nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, no kind of failure. Never, 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 never. Go and live in that love. And I have no concern about what you do with that information. That's between you and God. My job is to tell you there is a love that will never let you go, even in your lowest moment. And that's true. third truth. Jesus is going to restore him. John 21. Jesus is going to make this relationship right again. Jesus takes the initiative to do it. This isn't in our passage today, but if you are familiar with John 21, you know that Jesus fixes a breakfast for Peter on the beach and invites him to come, and they talk about their relationship. Peter gets to affirm his love for Jesus. Jesus. Jesus gives him the opportunity to say, I love you. Three times after three denials, Peter gets to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's not a super comfortable conversation, but they get there. What does that tell us? God is always ready to restore you. You know, it's not that way with humans. When you sin against another human, it may take you a long time to restore that relationship. You may never restore that relationship, but... Just in days, in mere days after Peter denies him, Jesus is reinitiating. He's ready. Jesus is ready to do that, okay? God is ready for the walls that you think exist between him and you. He is ready for those walls to come down right now. Even if you don't think you can go back to him, he is ready. Because he's already seen it. He's already paid the price for it. He knows you. He loves you. He is ready to restore you before any human is ready to restore you to loving relationship and fellowship. There's no reason to wait. God's ready. His arms are open. He is a restorer of relationship. Truth number four. Jesus will use him. Acts 2. When we get to the later part of the story of Peter's life, we see he's speaking very, very publicly on Jesus' behalf before lots of people. Luke 22, he's afraid to speak and advocate for Jesus just in a small group of people. Boy, by Acts 2... He's talking with thousands of people without any kind of fear. He's the one. Jesus chose to deliver that first charged sermon about the resurrection. Peter. Jesus will use him. We see that his failure didn't disqualify him from future usefulness to God. And here's what we have to remind ourselves, and this is nearly the last thing. God only uses failures. There's no other pool of people to draw from. Like, we we tend to spotlight Peter and say, wow, look at the way that God used this failure. You know, everyone could maybe be a Peter, and Peter's failure didn't disqualify him. He was this huge failure, and then God used him. But you have to remember, it's not just Peter. Everyone who God has used, ever, is also a failure. We don't all fail in the same way, and maybe the failures aren't as scandalous and as big a spectacle, but everyone that God uses is a failure. From Saul of Tarsus, to John the Apostle, to St. Augustine, to Martin Luther, failures everyone. Certain kinds of failures will disqualify you from certain kinds of ministry. Certain kinds of failures will disqualify you from certain kinds of ministry, and that's a good thing. But there's no failure that ever disqualifies you from usefulness to God. There is a good future for you. You are able to help other weak people people we need those testimonies we need the testimonies in our lives of people that have failed that God has shown a future for and hear how God has used me anyway even though I failed there is hope for you after failure last thing don't forget this Peter's failure was um, spectacular and it was memorable And he takes a lot of flack for it, but remember, he was the only one of the disciples who was in position to fail spectacularly. He was the only one of the disciples that was even in position to fail spectacularly. He was the only one with the courage to follow at a distance. And see what would happen to his beloved teacher. And to try to be with him to the extent that he could. Everyone else had run away. Don't think for a moment that Jesus didn't know and didn't cherish that kind of heart desire. To be with him in his hardest moment. Even knowing what Peter was going to do. Keep going. Keep following as closely as you can. Press into a relationship with Jesus. That is precious to him. Because he loves you. This, these tables up here are going to be open to you in just a moment. These tables that belong to Jesus. So you can come and remember just how much he loves you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I, I pray for your restoring mercies in this moment. For those who need to be restored who think that their failure is um, keeping up these walls between you and, and them and that they're no good to you anymore and they're believing all these lies about their relationship with you and even have just reached this really, really low moment. I, I pray that, that truth and mercy would flood into those lives today. and. Bring those walls down, and that there would be a loving restoration today, just as we see that there was for Peter. God, we thank you so much that these things are true. We don't have to stay in our pit, but Jesus comes and rescues. We pray in his lovely name. Amen.